I too, before we get started here on our time in Ecclesiastes, I too is going to make a brief note. I, I'm sure you, you see this as you're singing it and confessing it, um, but I hope you did really see um, and track that last song or, or the song before last. Um, did you notice the, the emphasis as the song gets started? And again, I, I'm, I'm just saying it's making observable statements in song that are informed by Scripture theologically. And it's important to grasp in that song right at the very outset. I hope you rejoice over the location and the place of your surety. That, that, that's a critical piece um, that, that, that we need to keep in mind by faith, that, that your surety stands before the throne. That, that, that's not to be missed or, or to um, a lack of meditation upon that truth. I think oftentimes it's the reversal of how we kind of think or we find our surety standing somewhere other than before the throne. We're looking for surety somewhere other than there. We're looking for surety in ourselves. And, and, and the whole thrust of that song beginning with like before the throne is the place, the location of my surety. That, that, that's where I, 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 am, I am assured that my victory has been won. He who stands before the throne is my surety, not my own conscience. And, and, and then by the time you get to the end of it, it's your confidence. You're now drawing nigh. But how did you get from here to your confidence, the other whatever it is, six verses that we sang, or whatever the number be there? You start by locating and we must always locate the surety to our life in Christ is Christ himself. And that he stands for us before the throne of grace. That is this morning as we gather as the people of God, our surety. And so we praise his name. The second portion as we jump towards Ecclesiastes on that little song notation there, moving forward to Ecclesiastes. I will admit to you, I've had a hard time kind of working through this portion of Scripture. I hope that I can present it profitably to you. You're going to have to work with me as I try to. Um, it's been a challenge. As you notice there, um, we, we were in chapter 9, and did you notice um, I pulled a fast one on you? Or in chapter 11. <laughs> I hope that I can make 10 profitable by way of observation as we move through it introductory. Um, there, there's kind of, what, what's happening in chapter 10? Uh, um, is a judgment call of, uh, of when and how to handle chapter 10 and its appropriateness for which context and which considerations and who's the audience and how you're handling it. So I don't want to like brush past it because of its particulars, but I, I, I made a, a, a judgment call um, on, on, on its return for us in this particular format at this particular moment. Chapter 10 is dealing with a very historical situation, and that historical situation of which the Proverbs unpack for this individual is a very particular individual that is living his life within the political landscape. So we might have one or two politicians of some degree or some kind in here or those who just watch way too much news. But I, we didn't have enough to, 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 for me to, at this point, spend our time dealing with each and every unpacking of proverb in order to apply to the individual who is involved in the political landscape, uh, even in this kind of sort of political season for us. So, in other words, it's not centered so much, as I presented to you this morning, on the generic individual, that, those of who you are. Uh, you know, not, not, not pejoratively generic, but, you know, everyday Joes um, in the positive light. And that is, it, again, deals quite more narrowly with one who is in the thrust of politics. However, the preacher uses, as you would spend your time reading, of which I'm, again, not unpacking this morning each and every pass, but you'll go through and you'll see all of the parable statements of chapter 10 to this one individual or this lifestyle lived. And he does, through the Proverbs, uh, provide narrow instruction, very narrow, very pointed. This applies to you, narrow and then yet, in the same proverb, it is enabled to be broadened, its scope and its horizons and its guiding instruction to be expanded, to both include the average Joe and to be very poignant and purposeful to the political individual. So, 
there is a basic observation to the chapter 10, or to chapter 10, that I do want to make clear by way of introduction. And this basic observation that applies to each and every one of us, or again, the more particularized individual, and this basic observation that I'm about to state for each of us through chapter 10, it's kind of like this summary statement, again, is a summary statement that we've been tracking for quite some time through the book of Ecclesiastes. So again, The return for us at this point in chapter 10 for this particular setting is going to be a bit more, I I would probably work through the Proverbs and you say, you've said that. And then I would hit you again and say, but he changed a word. Yeah, I I get that. He changed a word, but you already said that, right? And I already said that. And I already said that. And so we've been kind of tracking this particular aspect of chapter 10 for quite some time now. But I do want to hit it yet again just to state what he's really driving at in the most broad terms or the most generic terms of chapter 10. It is something like this. Small and even apparently insignificant. And and, and this is kind of, again, the 100,000-foot statement of chapter 10. Small and even apparently insignificant amounts of foolishness spoil significant portions of wisdom. This is what he's dealing with in the individual arena of politics and the political life and the one who is caught up in that environment. And yet, as he applies it very poignantly to this individual with each and every pass of the Proverbs, he can step back and most broadly speak to each and every one of us with this same thrust. And that is small and even, and I double underline, apparently small and even apparently insignificant amounts of foolishness spoil significant portions of wisdom. This is the idea, and I want to show you how I got there with this kind of summary statement for chapter 10, because he gives us three easy pieces. Again, not all of the Proverbs, but three basic building blocks that we can step back and say, aha, this is the summary of what he's getting at. He gives us three of them in chapter 10. I want to know each one of them for you by introduction. He notes flies, snakes, and birds. These three pieces help us get kind of the summary statement of chapter 10. Flies, snakes, and birds. Now, what's the point? Let me read the text, each one of those, um, for you, and then I'll kind of summarize how they play to the part of the theme of chapter 10. If you're there uh, in chapter 10, let's just briefly look at it as we kind of scan it for its largest thrust, most broadly, for each and every day kind of individuals like ourselves. Verse 1 of chapter 10, he starts out, um, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Okay, so, so you're tracking, okay, a dead fly in the ointment. And, and you've heard that colloquial saying at times, wow, that's the real fly in the ointment. That, 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 that's the idea, that's where that's coming from. Oh, he's a real fly in the ointment, you know, kind of individual. Or, or, or that, that's the fact that spoils the whole. Man, that's, everything would be great except for the fly in the ointment. This one piece that kind of really hurts the entire project. So this is the idea of what he's getting at. So again, he speaks of how such a little thing, and he's going to tie it to the idea of foolishness. This small little portion really ruins significant portions of wisdom. Like dead flies make perfumers ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. From the flies, then move on to the third or the second piece, sorry, and that's verse 11. If you look at verse 11, this is his next piece to the puzzle overall that helps us grasp the thrust of the Proverbs, the thrust of chapter 10, and that is verse 11. If the serpent, so he moves through the kind of Proverbs and Proverbs about wisdom and success and so on and so forth, and he comes to verse 11, and then he hits you with this. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Okay, so track that. Okay, so now I've got, I've got dead flies in ointment, and I've got a snake that's biting a charmer. Now, these two thoughts are linked to give you an overall singular thought about what he's saying. So, the second piece, snakes. Just think. You've seen it, you know, either in cartoon or you've seen it in, on, on, on a video of some sort. Snake charmer. 
doing his thing and the snake is rising up. And, and, and think of that in your head. Because he's saying, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. And you're thinking, okay, that seems to make sense. Yeah, I mean, before he can get the thing going, it bites him. I, well, it's not really working for him. Okay, so, so you're, you're piecing that together. You're like, all right, so, but how does that connect with like flies and ointment? What's the... Okay, well, wait, I'll tell you. Let me give you one more, th- one more piece, and that is the third picture. Verse 20. So we go down through, again, all of these proverbs and these issues of care and land and worry and kings and cursing and so on. Here we are at chapter, uh, or, or, or verse 20. Even if your thought, um, even in your thought, do not curse the king. So now we're getting into a little bit more of the thrust of that, of that political scheme, of the political landscape of what we're dealing with. Even in your thought, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. Why not? Well, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. Okay, so there's your, your third picture. It's complete now. You know that there's a, a, a little bird. There's a dead fly. And there's a snake that's biting someone. So we've got these three pieces come together to give us the thrust of the big picture of what we're dealing with here in chapter 10 that each one of us, through this broad picture, can take away the thrust and the theme of the text. And that is, yet again, each one of these pictures... Each one of the creatures is small. So flies, not large. Snake, not as big as man. Bird can be small and perched and fly away. Each one in the picture, each one of them, as he uses them as instructional tools, is seemingly small or is reality in small portion But it packs, each one of them, think about it, each one, since they're small, they pack very small potential for harm. That's what we think. It's a fly. It's small. It packs very small, then, potential for any significant or real harm. I mean, you have man, you have snake. I mean, yeah, there's harm, but it packs very small portions of harm. It's a bird. What's it really going to do? It's small. it's It's not a lion. It's, it, it, so in, in our observable wisdom, we think that it, since it is small, it packs very minimal potential for harm. But the preacher warns, looks can be deceiving. So in sum of chapter 10, let me kind of bring the entire picture together. Think about it in this proportion. Of what I've already said, small and apparently insignificant amounts of foolishness spoil significant portions of wisdom. You think, right? Because we all kind of think maybe just a little bit of this mixed in. But didn't our mom tell us, even if it was us who was the bad apple? You know, one bad apple spoils a, I don't know what apples, bushels? I think they're in bushels is how they're weighed, right? One bad one makes the rest of them bad is the idea. That, 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 that is in applicable wisdom because it's been passed along because it's appropriate. We think of it as, no, just one bad apple. It's just a bad apple. No, you, you, but looks can be deceiving. One bad apple spoils a bunch or, or a bushel or whatever. Or whatever. So you get the idea. So with that idea in your mind, let me summarize. Dead flies spoil a lot of precious ointment. Little snakes can kill a big person. A little bird can tell the king your secret thoughts and get you into really big trouble. What's the end of the matter then for us? What does he want us to do? And this is where the theme kind of comes most clear in chapter 10, and that is this, use wisdom then to navigate through life. Again, that's matching a theme that we've been developing for a few chapters now, is his call. Since, again, that makes sense, right? Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. So his thrust here, whether you're in politics and you're at the heart of the king's uh, uh, political life, 
Or, or, or you're an average Joe, considering that just a little sin and a little folly won't really ruin too much of my life. He calls everyone to the table and he says, then you have severely underestimated its potential. If you speak in your room, you think it's no big deal, that bird somehow is going to tell the king and you lose your head. You thought it was a small little comment. It is significant and will ruin your life. You thought that sin was just kind of a small little tangential issue and it will creep up, grip you, and ruin your life. Well, then what am I to do? Use wisdom to navigate through life. This is how he is developing it. Now, we've already located wisdom in the fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord we have already rooted in the call of the gospel. So what am I to do with sin and its potential to bring destruction to me? Repent and turn to Christ. Use wisdom to maneuver through life. This is the thrust of chapter 10. Now I want to join to you in chapter 11 because don't think for a moment that was the sermon. Don't think for a moment or you have severely underestimated it. We're just warming up. So this morning, to join then, kind of to follow thematically chapter 10 into chapter 11 so that it's not disjuncted two pieces of, uh, of, kind of, uh, of paper separated. But as we follow the theme then, it's kind of like chapter 10, chapter 10 will cast us into chapter 11 with a therefore kind of concept. So in other words, chapter 10 begins with being guided by wisdom. All right, so the thrust of it, use wisdom to navigate through life. Now you hit chapter 11 and it says, being therefore guided by wisdom, risk. Therefore, being guided by wisdom, risk. Again, rarely do you come to church to hear a financial message or maybe come to church in order to hear something about cost-benefit analysis or, uh, you know, how am I doing in the risk portfolio. And so it's a, it's a, little, bit, a little bit different. It's structured a little bit um, different. I, I've wrestled with working through it, but th- this is the text before us, and there is wisdom here for us to yield each and every time to grasp and to meditate upon as we seek to live by faith in a mode of wisdom. The preacher is calling you to consider the wise life. And as you're living wisely, take risks. I don't know, again, how this sermon lands to impact. Because I don't know each and every one of you, uh, your individual circumstances, and how you're considering life as risk. What is it right now you're thinking about, right before you, that you're thinking is risky. What is it? Well, good. I'm glad you thought of it and identified it. Now that you have it in your mind's view, hear the sermon in coordination with your providence. The preacher is telling you, take wisdom and risk. Now, before we all run out the door and do something completely irrational... Let's unpack this text just a little bit of what exactly is appropriate levels of risk and how risk is indeed supposed to be informed risk before we all just go, well, I'd really love to do this. I knew I should have done it. I'm out of here. That was a good word. Um, Before I affirm you and your naivety, first, let us think together, come together in reason around the text to see indeed there is risk, but how so and in what manner. Verse 1 is where we begin then. He says, With this statement, following chapter 10, he tells you, the listener, the preacher does, he says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it, um, you will find it after many days. Now, certainly I think, as I've worked on this text, we're going to need to stop right there already and consider what in the world is he talking about, about casting your bread on the water. Um, as As I'm suggesting to you, what he is telling you is risk. Now, in order to do it, I want to unpack it in three steps here. Step one is first things first, right? Roman numeral one, first things first. And that is what he is not saying to you, what he is not instructing the listener to do. And I think we all get it, but for my own sake, let me suggest uh, that, that I put it forward. What we can all agree upon, I think, is in verse one, the preacher is not, that is not suggesting that you literally place resources that are vital 
in a container of some sort and send it out to sea. We know that, okay? Great. So we're all there, surely. I'm, I'm giving you the, the, the benefit of the doubt here that we're together. He's not suggesting that. So we have some work to do here because he is saying something significant here. And I'm suggesting to you he is telling you to risk. Because what we know he is not saying is put your resources that are vital for life sustainability into a container and send it out to the sea. Think about it simply for a moment. It would sink. It's not coming back after a few days. It would be sunk, or it will sink. Or you'd think it would tumble over and who knows, I don't know, fish or whatever would nibble at it and then your bread would be gone. And, 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 and then you're surely not banking on the currents to bring it back after many days. You would be standing at the beach a very long time and you would be starving. So you recognize this is not what he's saying. So there's something clearly here that he's thrusting upon me that I need to meditate upon and unpack because there is a word here that is earnest on his part to you. So what is it? So instead, what we have here is this statement about risk. The preacher is simply saying, risk and, I'll, and I'll, I'll prove this out as we go through the text next. But consider with me, the preacher is suggesting to you, risk in such a way. Now, this is the thrust of it. Risk in such a way that the hopeful return, right? Here's you on the beach. Go with him what he's telling you to do. You are there. You know he's literally not saying it, but you're going to go there in your mind anyway. And you're going to picture what he is saying by what he's literally not saying. I'm going to go there. I'm taking my container. I'm taking my valuables. I'm putting it in the container, and I'm standing at the beach, and I'm pushing it out. And he says, great, you're there. You're there with me on the beach, right? And they say, yes. Okay, think about this for a moment then. Guess what I am saying in that picture to you? I am saying to you, do that, but don't do that. In the sense that you need to risk in such a way that you are doubtful upon the return, that you will risk in such a way that the hopeful return seems rather impossible. Risk in such a way that the hopeful return upon your risk, I'm going to risk, I'm going to send it out. Good, you're at the beach. You're sending it to the water. And now I want you to do that in your life in such a way that the return seems impossible. You know, like do something like send your bread out to sea. That level risk. Enter into that uncertainty. You're saying that is very uncertain because I'm there in my mind at the beach and I know I'm not going to see that bread again. Right. So risk in such a way that you calculate in your mind what I am saying to you, and that is no risk. You know the rest of that statement, don't you? Come on. No reward. I love the verbal feedback. It's affirming. <laughs> We're on the same track. No risk. No reward. no reward. Thank you. That was a person of conviction. That's exactly right. Or you say something along the lines and you've, you've been coached in sports or you've coached someone else in sports or you've coached someone or encouraged someone about their life or you've been mentored in such a situation. Many of you I look out and we've heard of your situations in and out, choices that need to be made in real time. And the encouragements, I'm sure, have come along the lines of be careful, but indeed something like those who never try never succeed. I thought, you know, and I'm very partial to sports history. Um, I, I'm not a big, huge sports guy, but there was one person that, you know, I really did track as a kid, and I really, I, I mean, you know, I just thought it was, he was amazing, of course. And my generation, you know, two or three years down from, or up from you, not down from you, up from you, um, largely speaking, was Michael Jordan. So whatever Michael Jordan did, you know, he set the record. If there's any kind of, he's the next Michael Jordan. All the Michael Jordan people were like, no, there's never going to be another Michael Jordan. You know, there was deep, deep, for whatever reason, investment in Michael Jordan. I thought this statement came from him. You've probably heard this statement, but I've been corrected in my research. It was actually Wayne Gretzky. I'm not a hockey fan, so I really don't care. I think there's some in our audience that are deep, deeply committed hockey fans, and so I'll give credit where credit is due, and it's Wayne Gretzky to this same kind of idea. Just hear it from an individual as they play out the idea of no risk, 
no reward. Back in 1983, Wayne Gretzky responded to Bob McKenzie's, uh, he's an editor of Hockey News, statement, and he said, you've taken a lot of shots this year. Gretzky responds. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. That was Wayne Gretzky, not Michael Jordan. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take, even though, this is Gretzky continuing, even though there is only a 1% to 5% probability rate of scoring. Cost-benefit analysis. Risk and reward. The preacher says to you, send your bread out to sea. But there's only like a 1% to 5% chance that my bread is going to come back. Right. No risk, no reward either. Gretzky concludes his statement, you can't get to where you truly want to be without taking chances, end quote. Again, I don't know what you might be facing. I don't know what, what, what you might be thinking through analysis-wise, family-wise, career-wise, relational-wise. Again, this is broader than where we're about to go. It is broad. There is a level of risk to simply breathing oxygen. So, so everyone faces risk. And so the preacher is coming to you. And again, I can't speak into the particulars, but again, at this point, he is calling upon you with biblical wisdom. Take the risk. Now again, before we are rational, let's continue down through the text. Take the risk. Gretzky affirms, without taking chances, you can't get to where you want to be. Second portion of kind of clarifying the somewhat ambiguous statement of verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it many days later or in many days, is what he then says and gives us information to help us unpack the first statement of verse 1. With verse 2, he gives us more information. He arms our minds to clarify what the kind of removed context listener hears in this kind of proverb. Verse 2, he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. Now, remember, what portion? A portion of what? A portion of your bread. So there you are on the beach, and he's now kind of clarifying, don't send it out in one vessel. Like, bring seven, maybe even eight pieces of Tupperware. Lay them on the beach and put your bread, kind of divide it into seven, maybe even bring an eighth. Okay? This is what you're going to do. This is what he is suggesting about your portion regarding your valuables. Four, and this is how he grounds the call to give. Give it away in this manner. For, this is the grounds for why I'm suggesting this must be done this way. You know not what disaster may happen on earth. There's the grounds for why you have to do seven or maybe even eight divisions of your portion. You don't know what's going to happen. This clarifies a statement of risk because what he is suggesting here, he's giving you a model of what we would suggest, or, or, or some sort of a financial advisor, some of you may be, some of you are in finance, certainly, and then some of you might be at advisors, some of you hope someday to have enough to go to an advisor. Either way, put it in the realm of an advisor, and what he is suggesting to you is, you need risk management. So you need to indeed risk. No risk, no reward. But before you get carried away... You need to manage your risk wisely. In other words, the irrational thing isn't always the best thing. So, so calmly step back and think the division of your assets. That is, consider for a moment that achieving goals, which is what the text is kind of getting at, and what I'm hoping to put forward to you. I don't know what those goals are, and, and you do. So, so think through goals. Think through where you want to be. And I know this... this even saying that just sounds like it's cutting against the grain of the way that I think. I, I sound like I'm trying to be so motivationally minded right now. Um, um, you know, we didn't come to a seminar this morning. This is indeed the biblical unpacking of the text in some level of where you're at, where you want to be. That is breathing, living your life. There are things within you, providence before you, that you have goals that are set or or, or things you're trying to avoid might be a goal. Okay, great. So there's goals. The preacher comes to you and says, risk. Now, perform good risk management. That is something along the lines of achieving goals requires having a plan. A plan requires a strategy. It's not simply, you know, having a goal to get across the street 
And, and so there's your goal, and you have no plan and no strategy, and you just dart out across the street. That would be a failed risk management analysis. There could be two cars coming, one from each direction. Chances of making it then to your goal are slim to none. That would be only considering the goal without a plan, acting irrationally, and having no strategy, like using the crosswalk. We've got a way to get there. I don't need to run out in traffic. I could go down to the light and use a crosswalk. Better yet, if I get there, the light will make them stop for me, and I can go clearly. Great. You had a goal. You did some risk-benefit analysis. And you chose wisely to manage the risk and use the providence that's before you. Because a goal requires a plan. A plan requires a strategy. This all under the idea of risking. Take the risk. Now, one last question, or our first question of this particular aspect of the text is this. And it's kind of already been stated, and you see it quite clearly in the text. It's rather obvious, but let me nonetheless ask the question that you might have, and that is the question of, well then, if I am to perform risk management, one, I will risk, two, I must consider risk management, how is he offering me, this is the question, how does one manage risk well? How how do you do so? How do you manage life's risks well? How do you do so? His one, if, if I could boil it down to one word of what he is saying in this text, one single word, and you'd hear this from any standard, I think, any standard financial advisor. At least this is kind of what they suggest in the commercials. Diversify. Diversify. And, and, and maybe you know someone who didn't diversify very well, and then you had the economic kind of collapse in 2008. And the lack of diversification, not to mention even those who did have great diversification, took a severe blow. Put it into, if you had all of your assets, all of your expectations, and your hopes in one particular sector, kaboom. His one word to you in risk management is diversify. Now, how does he say that? In verse 2, you see it quite clearly at the very first portion. Give a portion to seven. Or even eight. Now, if I could suggest just briefly, we preached through the book of Revelation a a few years ago, and we saw repeatedly, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you see this theme that emerges with the number seven. This is that number of completion. I know you all remember that from your time in Revelation. So it's a footnote in the sermon, but a footnote nonetheless. It, It is a word of completion. So he's really encouraging you by adding even eight. He's really pushing the envelope to do some risk management. Seven is great, perfect, complete, you know, hey, maybe even eight. Let's do our market work here. Let's do our kind of, which way is the wind blowing? A little thoroughly. That is what he is suggesting. So in diversification, so the first thing is, first things first, it's not literal send your bread out to sea. Two, you have a picture into it. He is calling you to risk and risk well or use risk management by diversifying your expectations and your assets. And thirdly, the third piece of putting together this kind of statement on risk before we get to the rest of the passage, just briefly, and that is put it all together in in number three, putting it all together. If I could kind of summarize verse one and verse two and put the whole picture together completely for our sakes. Consider the first thing is its background. The background to the entire thing is sea trade. So historically speaking, sea trade was very risky business. I, I, I put in there historically speaking, but I think it's still pretty, pretty risky business. I mean, piracy is still on the move. Um, you know, we might not think of it like Jake and the Neverland Pirates, for those of you who have kids, you know what, what, what that is. You know, we're not talking that kind of risky business. We're talking real pirates. Um, and piracy and, and the gathering of goods, the holding hostage of individuals when you send your, your ships and goods and services to a different portion of the globe. Uh, you consider other aspects, historically speaking, and even now, I, I, there was a ship that went down in the most recent um, uh, hurricane in the Bahamas. And, and yet, how can that happen? We, we have radar or we have like GPS, both things that like if we're on the water, we know what's below the water and what's above us in the sky. Uh, yet, it's still risky business. This is the historical setting of what he's speaking of, using the sea and using your portion of bread as an analogous picture to calling you to act with risk. 
Sea trade is risky business, especially in those days. Those journeys were long and hazardous. If you go back to Solomon uh, in Kings, as he speaks of his own ships, a man of great movement across the waters, a man who, who harvested much and sent it and who, who received much from other lands by way of sea trade. In the text, it's expressing two to three years before you know whatever became of the men that you sent out. So you're talking a long time with a lot of valuables, which means a lot of risk especially with piracy, and think then you have no idea of what's below the water, and you really have no idea, besides doing one of these kind of numbers, what's happening up above you. You really don't know. It's almost sheer risk to send all this cedar lumber on this ship with these men to an unknown place, and I won't hear back for another two or three years. So consider the context here of what he is speaking to you and the heightened call for risk. And then again, finally, just consider that many ships right now currently are at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. So this context of sea trade is what he's saying. So think about this high level of risk. And then what does he say to you as, a, as let's say, a master builder who, who has fell numerous cedar trees and what you're going to do is you're going to sit on them or you're going to send them. And you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're, you're having to make this calculation. I don't know, this is a lot of money. And I might send it out to unknown waters with kind of unknown men on this crew to go all the way there with it. And hey, they might even keep it and start a new life for themselves when they get there. How, how do I, I mean, I don't, I, don't know, I, I, I don't know how to calculate. What should I do? What would you advise me to do? Be bold and risk. Send it out to sea. Act. Risk. No risk, no reward. The clarification that he adds to the advice, because the man's eyes might be popping out of his head, thinking, I can't do that, I don't know. That's your word to me, to be bold and to risk, to step out on faith. That's your word to me? How can, this is insane. He says, let me clarify Manage your risk well by diversifying. Now, diversifying here in this text, because maybe I've kind of brought you down to thinking, I really don't have any money, so I'm not really worried about what you're describing in risk and cost-benefit analysis. I, I, that's not really burdening me this morning. Well, think about how, indeed, even diversification speaks to our own emphases and hopes. Maybe we're too heavy-handed in one particular hope with our life lived for goals and for plans. Maybe we give no room to the Lord to, as we plan our steps, but the Lord orders our path, that kind of perspective. Maybe we have not diversified enough. Maybe we're, we're what, what's called tunnel-visioned. And there's only one way in which this would make sense for me. It's this. And what he is suggesting to you, not just financially, but even emotionally and relationally, diversify. Allowing kind of that sense of um, a burden easement when one thing kind of teeters and falls. You, You don't have to teeter and fall with it. That too is God's providence and his work in your life. Don't overinvest in one particular item or outcome that it almost sinks with your identity. If I can make it here, I can make it anywhere kind of statement. You can make it a lot of places. Other aspects are going to open up. I know it sounds cliche like other doors will open. They will. Diversify. Even your own emotional interest in your own emotional investment in particular outcomes of financial um, with your uh, occupation etc diversify that is don't allow something to be so overwhelmingly necessarily achieved that it sinks with your identity to where if i get it i finally am myself and if i don't if i fail in achieving it i myself am therefore a failure 
Now, why should I diversify here in this last little picture of what he offers? Diversify because why? Well, why should I diversify? And again, you know the thrust of it. Diversification needs to take place because you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. Warren Buffett, I thought he would be a good one to consult here on the matter, on the issue of diversification. Listen to Warren Buffett as he speaks. He says, what are the experts saying is what everyone wants to know. What I respond is, who cares? This, this is the point of what he is making, right? You don't know what's going to happen on the earth. What are the experts saying? Who cares? Anything can happen at any time. No advisor, no economist, no TV anchor or commentator can tell you what, when chaos will occur. No one can tell you when occur, uh, chaos will occur. Market forecasters, he concludes, will fill your ear, but they can never fill your wallet. There's just no way you can calculate all of the unknowns. You have to risk in life. No risk, no reward. I thought of three things, just kind of touching on our audience here a little bit for each of us, not everyone, of course, but just kind of larger sectors of our community here in thinking about who is currently living a life of risk, how are we risking, and, 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 and how's it going? Just thought... Quite obviously, number one, college and grad students are taking a gigantic risk. Think about it for a moment. You're, you're risking big bucks, some of you. Some of you, some others are risking, and I guess everyone is risking time and energy. Risking personal and relational sacrifices. You're making those sacrifices. And what is the risk in the benefit analysis? You're banking on there being a job available. That's a huge risk. And yet... We're doing it. Number two, think about it for a moment. Homeowners are taking a huge risk. How so? Well, consider real estate. You're banking on it going up, even if it only goes up this much. You're banking on it doing so and not going down. You're, you're taking risk. Think about in your renovations. You're hoping that this is going to turn around and it's going to be profitable for you. So you're taking yet another risk. Thirdly, think about those who are investing. You're investing in people, projects, real estate, etc., And those people who are acting on your behalf, who you're investing in, are unknown to you. What are their ethics? How is their behavior? What is their approach to the market? You who are able to invest are also investing in a risk way. So let me kind of summarize it this way. Whether uh, Whether it is relational, occupational, or investment, life is risk. And since that is the case... There are three guiding principles as we wind our time down this morning. Three guiding principles to living life with risk that he provides us. I want to give you each one of them just briefly. Number one, what should you do? So if you, if you receive the thought in verse 1 and verse 2 that it is a call for risk, take risk. Only take a calculated risk in the sense that you diversify well. Because, again, you need to diversify in case you tank with that which has tanked. So that's what he means by the end of verse 2. So then he provides you three guiding principles of how to manage risk well and how to live your life. Number one is the first guiding principle, the risking in life, is to take the long view. That's his comment in the second portion of verse 1. For you will find it after many days. You notice that he tells you to send the bread out into the water. And then he tells you, you will find it, but how many days did it take you to find it? Many. A long time. The first step to kind of considering your life in these relational outcomes about this issue of occupational outcomes on risk, what should I do today, will consider the long view return. Don't get so caught up in it that you're thinking like, I need to have the return tomorrow. You're not going to. He even suggests to you, in risk, take the long view. Take the long view. So the prize, in other words, goes to the patient. Now, the second portion, the second principle for risk. First, take the long view. Two, don't wait for perfect conditions. Look at verse 3 and 4. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if the tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Now, again, we'll unpack that just in a few seconds. Verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Now, think about it for a second. What is he saying in verse 3? How does that make sense about risk? Well, he tells you there are concrete things that happen in the earth that you just can't stop. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, guess what's going to happen? 
going to rain. That's pretty observable. That's pretty concrete. That's like if you dart out in front of a car, what's going to happen? You're probably going to get hit. Okay, that's an observable fact. That, 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 that's just cause and effect. Clear is day. Cloud with rain in it, eventually it's going to rain. Okay, great. That's, that's concrete and observable. I'll even give you another one that doesn't cost or is not risky. That is, if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where it fell, there it will lie. Okay, great. It fell to the south. Guess where the tree is laying? In the south. Okay, great. Fine. There are certain factors in life that should not be tinkered with. That is like, there are certain aspects within your life that you do have constraints upon you that you cannot simply get out of and act irrational about. You cannot say, you know, I'm throwing caution to the wind. That doesn't work very well. You can throw out some caution, but not completely into the wind where all caution blows away. There has to be some level of risk management involved because there are certain elements that just are not going to move. So, so don't be a person who runs out today and, and just starts swiping the credit card hot. It's some sort of like, that's a risk management that I'm going to take. I'm going to take that risk, and I'm going to live off that, and it's just all going to work out fine. He's saying, no, there are certain aspects that are conventions within life that are concrete. The tax man cometh. You're not getting out of that. If a tree falls to the south, in the south it sits. If if a cloud is full of rain, hey, guess what? The inevitable is going to happen. It's going to start raining. There are certain aspects that are concrete. However, let me push you in case you say, ah, that's my resting place. I'm never going to have to risk. Because, like, I'm the wise one who recognizes just live within the concrete principles of life and take no risk. He comes right back at your type. Notice how he does so in verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, he gives you a picture here of a farmer. Think about it just for a moment. He who observes the wind will not sow. Why not? Why, why, will the, why, why will he who observes the wind not sow? Because, right, he's going to take his bag of seed in that kind of setting, and he's going to be casting it. But if he is noticing the wind patterns, he's never going to cast it. Why? Because the wind is inevitably going to blow some of it away. So he is so cautious. No, did you feel that? I felt some wind. I'm going back in. Then tomorrow, he says the same thing. Grabs a blade of glass and throws it up like a golfer. There it went. I'm going back in. Right, yep. He who observes the wind will never sow. And then, and then, and then the other picture is, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. We've got to get the harvest out of the ground. We've got to get the bellies full. We've got to sell it at the market. Wait, it's raining out. Let's go back in. Okay, but we've got to get the harvest out of the ground. But it's raining out. In fact, I can see the clouds. Let's go in. But we've got to sell the product, get it out of the ground before it spoils. And we make profit and we fill our bellies and we make our life means. No, it's going to rain. It's going to rain. In other words, what he is saying is that don't get carried away with ta- and talk yourself out of every risk by waiting for absolute certainty. Don't talk yourself out of risk. If you, talk, if, if you say, I need ideal conditions, then you will lose. And you will lose badly. You cannot wait for perfect conditions to act. He who would observe the wind will never sow. He will never have food. He will never have finances because he knows someday it's going to blow wind. Then you're going to starve in your home. Didn't you realize it's going to rain tomorrow? Then you're never going to persevere. One kind of comment here is just simply this from one author says, we all have to take risks. The overly cautious individual is destined to failure. For optimal conditions may never materialize. Is that you? Optimal condition, John? Is that, that's a generic name. I, I, no, no offense, Parker. The, the idea, optimal Joe. Maybe we'll say optimal Joe. Optimal conditions. The overly cautious, I can't act, I can't act, I can't act, I can't risk. That individual is destined to fail for optimal conditions never materialize. Therefore, even though we can never be certain that our timing is perfect, we ought not to let the unknowns paralyze us. That's the man who will not sow seed because someday it's going to wind. It's going to blow wind. He says, rather, we ought to use every opportunity to do our work boldly. And as we recall, those who don't try never 
succeed. The third piece, the final piece of our time this morning, considering the life of risk, of three guiding principles. Take the long view. Don't be impatient on your returns. Take the long view. Do your homework. Spend your time. Invest in others. Take the long view. Secondly, don't wait for idyllic conditions. Don't insist upon the perfect conditions before you act. Thirdly, and this is a theme he's been sowing along again and again and again. Entrust yourself and the variables unto God. There are unknowns. Like, if you're alive three hours from now. I know we presume it, but we don't know it. But what are you doing with that? I trust you are entrusting yourself and your soul's estate unto God. That you don't know what will befall the earth. You don't know what disaster awaits. And you heard from chapter 9 that death happens suddenly. And as you live the life of risk, you're entrusting first and foremost your soul unto the Lord. That is, your faith, once again, your faith is resting in Him and receiving all of Him and His benefits alone. The theme of the passage here at this end, and this conclusion becomes most clear. Since you don't know exactly what God will do with the unknowns, work wisely and diligently with what you can and do know. And entrust each and every bit of the entire adventure unto the Lord. This is the final comment of the text. As you do not know, the way the Spirit comes to the bones and the womb of the child. Indeed a mystery. So you do not know the work of God. Who makes everything, guys. He makes everything. That's the canopy within which you live your life. Verse 6. Okay, then, if you confess, verse 5, live in verse 6, in the morning, sow your seed. That is, take the risk. And at evening, withhold not your hand. That is, from the harvesting, from the reaping, take the risk. For you do not know which one will prosper. This adventure, this providence, this work, this, this maneuver, this risk, or that maneuver, that adventure, or that risk, or whether both will be good. So what should I do? Act and trust. Let's pray. Father, we ask for wisdom that we would live before your face with our faith resting in Christ alone, that uh, we would act in time with the life that you have given us, with your word that you have provided,